good morning. We're going to talk um, a, a little bit about the mystery of prayer, and then we're going to pray uh, together. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about pre- prayer. And next week, uh, the prayer team, uh, there's lots of people involved in the prayer life of this church, both in small groups and larger scale, uh, they are going to uh, take this slot as they take this theme on. But we're going to talk together about the mystery of prayer over these two weeks. And what I want to do this morning is just introduce that. In your news sheet, you've got, please don't start looking at it now, our prayer menu. That was probably a bad choice by me to say, in your news sheet, you've got prayer menu. I'll explain what it is and how it works in, uh, in a little while. So uh, don't look at it quite yet. Um, some questions and some answers or some thoughts. Why do people pray? Martin Luther, the great reformer who we celebrate this year, 500 years on. It was 500 years ago exactly, 1517, that he nailed to the door of the cathedral church, the Wittenberg Cathedral Church, his 95 thesis or points that he wanted to make to the Catholic Church. And so began, they say, the great uh, Reformation. And Protestantism was born and different forms of Christianity were born out of that. Martin Luther said this about prayer. He said, prayer is a good Christian weapon. Prayer is a great Christian weapon. It changes things. Carl Jung, not known uh, well for uh, his Christian discipleship, known well for a lot of other things, he said this, prayer is a good tool for self-analysis. And I think between those two opinions hangs a whole load of stopping points along the way. Does prayer change things? If prayer does change things, why don't things we pray for always happen? When we pray, sometimes it seems to work, sometimes it seems to not work at all. There are people that say, well, it's, it's just about timing. There are a lot of things that aren't about timing. We pray for a person to live and they die. That's not about timing. It's about a prayer not being answered. So, is prayer a great Christian weapon? Is it a tool of self-analysis? And I suppose another question, does prayer do any, does prayer do, do any of us any good at all? What's prayer for? Why do people pray? My answer is this. Prayer's an instinct. Prayer's an innate impulse. Prayer is an urge. Prayer is a drive. We're all born that way. Prayer, the desire to pray, I believe, is as fundamental to human life as sexuality and anger. Human beings are spiritual. And there's no denying it or walking away from it. In actual fact, in our Western 20th century and now 21st century, a move has arisen, which tries to say to us, prayer is a superstition that belongs to the past and isn't relevant to life today. But in reality, we know, just through our archaeology and our sociology, that all peoples in all cultures have been drawn and are still drawn to spirituality. I spent four days of this week in Detroit. Detroit is pretty well a bombed out city. It's not bombed. It's, it went bankrupt in 2013. It was struggling before. It's 
buildings on fire and it, it, I've, I've never seen a city quite that broken. But in that city, in the brokenness of the kind of drug-ridden communities with houses on fire, you see little memorials. People gathered to remember. Little um, icons that have been put up. People are innately spiritual. As we do our archaeology, we find artifacts from previous civilizations and generations. We find out more about burial practices, ancient history around the world. Wherever we go, we find the same thing. People search for meaning. People search for purpose. It's rooted deep in our psyche. It's a natural desire. I believe that's why people pray. And that's why I've called this the mystery of prayer. I think there's an innate desire to pray in everyone, and we see it everywhere. Why we pray is sometimes a mystery even to the prayer. But the need to pray, the need to reach out, to find purpose, to find meaning, I believe is universal. It's everywhere. Richard Dawkins, not to pick on Richard necessarily, but he's well associated with this, would tell us that the question why doesn't count. It doesn't mean anything. The universe is cold and hard. It's made up of atoms and subatomic particles. That's the answer. In the end, we are just the, we are the product of time plus chance. That's it. That's all there is. Dawkins and others argue that point, and they say, therefore, that the why question doesn't need to be asked because there is no why. The why question not only doesn't need to be asked, the why question is a non-question. There is no why. There is no purpose. But the reality is that Richard Dawkins' son, I know Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins' son has become a Christian. I've talked with Richard about it. And as I said, he's become a Christian, Richard, in the search for meaning and purpose. It's innate in all human beings. In fact, all human beings, even atheists, pray. They pray when their football team's losing. They pray when their mother is ill. They pray when they take their broken-down car to the garage for an MOT. They pray when they're in need. And the prayer of humanity is always this. Please, Lord, give me. Give me what I want. Give me what I need. Sort my life out. My, make my pathway smooth. Make it easy. Give me. Give me. Give me. The why question is difficult for science because science is good at how questions, isn't it? Science is brilliant at how questions. Science has the tools and methodologies to deal with all the questions of how. It's very good at that. But all questions to do with meaning and purpose in life, they're difficult. You can't test them in a laboratory. And because they're difficult, actually, we don't do them. 
Like we often say, and you would have heard said before, the things we value in life we can't measure. So we measure other things and we come to value them. I work a lot in education. I know that only true well. That the government can't measure what really matters, so it measures what it can measure. And when it can measure what it can measure, it comes to value what it can measure. And what it can measure becomes dominant. What it can measure becomes the thing, the only thing. I've just been in America, where teach to the test has failed a generation. It's driven a generation into the ground. But you can only measure what you can measure, so you come to value what you can measure. But here's the bit that when people tell you all of that, they often don't think about. When you don't measure what you value, but you come to measure what you can value by the scientific method, the empirical me method, you come to value what you can measure. But the last bit of it is that what you measure then comes to dominate you. We are controlled by the things we can measure. We are controlled by the things that we think we're measuring. Those things end up measuring us. And we become the servants of those things. In some cases, you will see it in the NHS as well, and other areas of life, the slaves of those things. And we can't see an inch beyond the things that we can measure. Even though we're still left with the sense that they matter. That, I believe, is why people pray. Another question. Does God talk back? When you pray, does God speak? Is prayer about us speaking to God or God speaking to us? I think that begs a deeper question. Who is God? Of course, in our songs already this morning, we talked about God as a father. And when we pray, we say, our father in heaven. But of course, God is not a father. That's a picture. That's simply a picture. The concept of God as a father is a picture, but the concept of God as a father does not, cannot contain God. God is also spirit. The Old Testament talks about God as mother. God is beyond our reach. God is beyond each one of us. We use our words and our metaphors and our pictures to help us. So Jesus talks about God as a father. God, the Bible talks about God as a shepherd or a tower or a lion or a lamb. God isn't any of these things, but all of these pictures, metaphors, help us grasp at something bigger than we can imagine. I say that because I hope it will become obvious why I say it in the next couple of minutes. When I pray, I don't hear an audible voice. When I pray, I don't hear God shouting out loud. When Saul fell off his horse on the way to persecute Christians on the Damascus road, and Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
I don't think God had installed some giant amplification system on that road and turned it up real loud. A system that he purchased from Bose so that he could get through to Saul. I believe, I believe, Saul heard that voice inside himself. When Jesus is baptized and hears God say, you are my beloved son. I don't think that God had set up a stage system. I think that Jesus knew that quiet inner voice. When I pray, what often happens is new thoughts bubble up in my thinking that I'd never thought before and that I'm absolutely aware somehow come from outside myself. Like I said, I just spent these last four days, I flew back yesterday in Detroit. I went to Detroit because I think that um, Oasis is going to start working in Detroit. So I went at the invitation to meet with the city council and various, various other people, some great people, and um, had lots and lots of meetings. There are 45,000 homes in Detroit that are empty. Detroit was built for two million people. It's two-thirds empty as a city. It has whole um, suburbs that just, as I described them, bombed out. The wreckage is everywhere of the crash and the poverty and the drugs and the addictions. Eminem sang about um, uh, Detroit famously. He was born in, uh, he lived in Detroit and he made that film, Eight Mile. Do you know the film, Eight Mile? That's where I went. I went to Eight Mile, into that community. And one morning, um, three, two mornings, three mornings, uh, perhaps it was two mornings ago, I'd been in so many meetings, packed out all day, we're talking about all sorts of issues to do with the economy of the city and meeting with various leaders and people who worked in these communities. And I got up purposely, I got up purposely early and I got up and I went running and I just ran through the city trying not to be shot at as I, as I went. I figured I was running so early everyone with a gun was still asleep. And um, so I ran through the city and there was a storm actually. It was a thunderstorm as I ran but I kept running and I kept praying because I had to work out what did all of this mean all that I'd seen and the voices I'd heard and as I ran in the stillness and the quietness I believe I heard God's voice what I mean by that is thoughts filled my head that I know didn't come from me because they were beyond my understanding or grasp. It wasn't a kind of piece of mental arithmetic I did and where I showed my workings and came to a conclusion. It was as I said, what does this mean, God? That suddenly it seemed to fit into place and come together. Does that always work? No, it doesn't. Actually, what happened was I took those thoughts that had come into my The trouble with praying while I run, I discover, it's just a practical one, which I, I do, is by the time I get back, I can't remember it, what it was that I thought it was that was going. So I have these brilliant thoughts, and when I get home, I think, oh, blow, what was that? So 
it's really difficult. So what I've worked out is to take my mobile phone with me and then I, um, and then I stop and I just scribble it all down, you know, just as quick as I can. And, um, and then through that next day, which was probably Friday, um, I sat with leaders, the, the people that I'd met, and just put on the table the thoughts that I believe had come from God's spirit. And um, we move forward from there. Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said, when a man starts to pray, he believes it's a matter of talking to God. But as he goes on, he comes to understand it's rather a matter of listening to God. But in my prayer, I don't find it's me talking and then God talking. I have a go, then he has a go, then I have a go, then he has a go. It's not that simple. It's deeper. It's a kind of union. Not that I regard myself as one of life's great prayers, but I regard prayer in my life as an expression of dependency. Does prayer change anything? Remember I've just told you that God doesn't fit into the bucket of being a father. He's much more than that. Andrew read to us those beautiful words, didn't he? Every time I hear those words, ask, knock, seek, and you will find. Does not any father know how to give good things to his son? Surely your heavenly father will meet your needs. But walk the narrow road. Here's the thing. We always quote those verses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. Pray, and it will be delivered. We use that as a kind of proof text to prove that God answers our prayers. But it's really rather ridiculous. Jesus says these things to a bunch of Jews who want the Romans dead. They want the Romans out of town. They want every last Roman to be a corpse. And that is their prayer, persistently. Those of you who read through the New Testament know it continues to be their prayer into the book called We Call the Acts of the Apostles. After Jesus has died and risen from the dead, they're still saying, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom of Israel to us? Will you do it now? Can we run the Romans through now? That is their prayer. That is their urge. That is their instinct. And Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Knock. And you'll have it. And they've been praying for 400 years that these Romans and Greeks will be run through. And God hasn't answered their prayer. And nor does he answer it through Jesus. You know what they say, don't you? We say often, a text without a context is a pretext for any old kind of rubbish you want to dream up. And then stick on people and make them feel guilty because their prayer didn't work. And then they assume they were praying in the wrong language, the wrong style. They didn't get the end right. They should have prayed more earnestly. They should have prayed longer. They should have prayed 24-7 instead of 12-7. They should have worked harder. There weren't enough people in the room. If there'd have been more people there, it would have worked. All of these are naive understandings of prayer. Naive and formulaic. 
born out of a poverty of the reading of the Bible, I believe, not a depth of reading it. Words without context mean nothing at best. Words without context are deeply misleading at worst. We didn't read it because you can have endless Bible readings. But the book of James is clear. The, righteous, the prayer of a righteous man achieves a lot. If someone is sick, bring him to the elders and the elders will pray for him and they will be healed. We should read our New Testaments. I invite you to read that chapter. That, I've heard that verse mentioned, verses, few verses mentioned endlessly. But if you read it in context, it actually flows straight out of a little discussion James is having about Job. He talks about Job. Job is the man who prayed and prayed and prayed and his wife was, was gone and his children were gone and he was robbed of everything and he ends up with nothing and he ends up covered in balls. Everything he values in life is wrenched from him and taken from him even though he prays. And James puts the whole argument about prayer in the context of telling the story of Job. So it's deeper. It strikes me that what Jesus and James in this case are saying is live with a dependency. To put it this way, this is a bit complicated, but I wrote it down so I thought I'd say it. It came to me that prayer is dialogical and dialectical. If that means nothing to you, reject it. Prayer is a dialogue, and it's also a dialectic. Dialogue is agreement. Dialectic is argument. It's about oppositions. When I pray, there's an agreement and there's a tension. Because sometimes my prayer is a juvenile prayer, a self-centered prayer. When Andrew read that reading to us, he read across two bits of what Jesus said that have divided up. Andrew even read the heading of the next bit. He read the bit all about praying and asking and receiving, and then he read the next two verses, which come in a different uh, paragraph. It's not that way in Matthew's Gospel. It's just the way we divide it up. And Jesus says, but go the narrow way, not the wide way. Few are the people who find the narrow way in life. Many are those who walk the wide way in life. Enter through the narrow gate. And we go, oh, well, that, Jesus was just talking about prayer earlier. This is a different subject. No, it's not. He's saying, lay your life down. Ask and you will receive. Walk. But enter the narrow gate. Walk the narrow way. God's not in the habit of answering your prayers from your self-centered point of view. Rather, prayer is the surrender of your life. We talk about prayer as petition and intercession. But it's also about thanks and praise and confession. And when I thank God and when I praise God and when I confess my failings to God, I am changed through that process. 
Of course I plead for others. Of course I intercede for others. Of course I ask God for the things that I need. But as my prayer is a thanks for my life that I'm here today, that I can enjoy this day, that I can have a meal with my family, that I can celebrate life, as I give thanks for that and I praise God for what he has brought to me, and I confess my struggles and my shortcomings and my annoyances and my unkind words, and I live in an awareness of that, I am being changed by all of that all of the time. But I now want to ask a strange question. It's, has God changed through history? Has God changed? You see, the thing is this. I don't think God has changed at all. I'm coming back to God as a father in a moment. I don't think that God has changed at all. But the objective reality is that the God who's presented on some of the pages of some of the books in the Old Testament, not all of them, is vengeful and tribal and fickle and he doesn't give a fig about Egyptians and he lives up a particular mountain. Yeah? You recognize that God? Have you read about that God? The God who hates Egyptians and Moabites and all tribes except the people of Israel. That God who lives up that mountain. God, in some of the books of the Old Testament, who's vengeful and tribal, and fickle, and he doesn't like Egyptians or anybody else except Israelites, and he wants to wipe them all out, and he lives up a mountain, the mountain of the Lord, where Moses goes to get the Ten Commandments. We read about that God. We read about the God who likes sacrifice, who demands sacrifice. But then towards the end of the Old Testament, in another book in that library, Micah, we read that God doesn't want sacrifice. Has God changed his mind? Did he say, a few years ago, I was well into sacrifice. But now, on reflection, I see things differently because I'm maturing and changing and growing up. It's not that at all. The Bible is a library and it's written across a a, a long time. And human beings have slowly come to understand that God is not like they first thought he was. He's not tribal and he's not territorial and he doesn't live up a particular mountain. And actually he quite likes Egyptians. And he's not into sacrifice. What he's looking for is justice and obedience. So, we learn that God is love and mercy. But here's the thing. The arrogance of our generation that we sit there and go, ha ha, all all of those Israelites back then, what a stupid bunch they were. But we, 21st century Westerners, with our degrees, we've got God sorted we're still on a journey and that's the bit about God as a father we are still discovering how to fill that label that description we're still discovering what God is and do you not think that in 75 years time Christians will look back and others and go back at the beginning of the 21st century They believed, oh, I cannot believe how backward they were. God is the same always. We are slowly discovering. We are slowly waking up. 
We are slowly learning, but we are still on that journey. I've got a friend who's a bishop, and uh, I was with him, um, I was with him uh, the week before last, and he told me that he'd been asked to bless a roller coaster. <laughs> and he'd gone and done it. The bishop of Liverpool, actually, my friend, his name's Paul, and he said to me, but I cannot bless two women who want to spend the rest of their lives faithfully with one another. How can I live in a world where I bless roller coasters, not, but not people? We're on a journey in so many ways. We're still discovering. We're still learning. And Jesus says, seek, seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open to you. What's he really talking about? He's talking about the journey of discovering who God is, which we do through our dependence on him. And the more we seek the narrow road and not the wide road, the more in tune we are with who God is. I don't know why sometimes I pray and that prayer isn't answered. I haven't a clue. And I don't know why sometimes I pray and the prayer is answered. I really don't know. But I do know this, that if God is love, his prime concern cannot be that we have a good time. His prime concern is love. And sometimes love is costly. And sometimes it will demand my life. Sometimes it will demand all that I have. Life is riddled with spirituality. How do we pray? It's not just institutionalized and it's not just official structures. Everyday life is a prayer, but not every life is a prayer. Everyday life can be a prayer, but not every life is a prayer because life becomes a prayer. You can be doing yoga and pray. I'm looking at Rona. Or you can be doing holy yoga. Rona has holy yoga and yoga. I don't know what the difference is because if, if, if the ordinary yoga is holy, we should ditch it and just do the holy stuff, shouldn't we? Do you know? But the point is... Everything's holy for those who choose the pathway of prayer and nothing's holy for those who despise that learning and that listening and that struggling and that journey when we will be shaped to become more like Christ. I'd like to uh, quote, uh, uh, nearly finished. This is a great quote. Some people get drunk to escape reality. Some people shop to escape reality. Some people pray to escape reality. Who said this? It's a man called Ken McGreevy. Ken McGreevy died in 2011. I knew Ken McGreevy. Nita and Jerry knew Ken McGreevy too. Ken McGreevy was a leader of a church in South London called Ichthus, and he became a leader of the prayer movement and 24-7 and all of that became a mentor. Look at what he says. Some people get drunk to escape reality. Some people shop and some people pray. It's all the same thing. Ken went on to say this. Sometimes God doesn't give us answers. God just gives us himself. We're on the journey. Ask and you will receive. You'll get a little bit more of me. Your understanding of me and my ways will grow. You'll stop blessing roller coasters and start blessing people. God just gives us himself. 
And in receiving God himself, in receiving the grace giver, even when nothing changes, even when nothing changes, we are changed. We are made more human through walking the narrow road. We find courage to submit our will to God's, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then he said this about intercession, about praying for change. Intercession isn't an alternative to action. The good news is your prayers have been heard. The bad news is you've got the job. A great place for us to begin to pray. Dan's going to come and lead us in prayer, but we've uh, produced as the leadership team of the church, we produced this uh, prayer menu. Let me read just the back to you. Prayer is a vital part of our lives as individuals as well as for our whole church community here. Prayer is a practical expression of our relationship with and our dependence on God, our needs and our concerns, our trials and joys. It's part of our discipleship. Of course, when we reduce prayer to a formula, we miss the point. But at the same time, just like every other good habit in life, it takes discipline and commitment to develop. Then this last important paragraph. Discovering how to pray. Discovering how to pray is a lifelong adventure. But the ten practices described inside this leaflet provide some good starting points. We invite you to get involved. This is not a manual of the ten approved ways of praying by Oasis Waterloo. These are ten ideas for how you might begin to pray. Ten ways we as a church pray. Ten ideas for you to get involved in. Ideas for you to get involved in on your own, at the start of the day or the end of the day. Ideas to get involved in together. They're ten ideas. But if I've asked all these questions about prayer as I've gone through, the last thing I want to say is simply this. We'll never know how prayer works until we experiment. So here's the challenge. Carry out your own experiment in prayer. Read through this booklet. Choose one or two ways in here to pray and then stick with it for a long time. That's what we don't do very often. Stick with things for a long time. I don't mean till Thursday and you get bored. I mean stick with it for a long time and then you will prove how prayer works because you will be changed and you will see God change all sorts of things around you and the interaction between those two things will still be a mystery to you probably. But you can only find out about prayer by praying. Let's pray.